You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Today we're going to be in Genesis, <coughs> excuse me, four and five. If I can get my throat cleared, and um, we're covering two chapters today. So um, just prepare to be here until about two o'clock. And <coughs> I'm, I'm going. I'm joking. Um, I'm going to try to make it as brief as possible. But because of the time restriction and preaching through a big book like Genesis, um, typically week week by week as we go through this book, we're not going to read every single verse, especially when we're covering two chapters. And so I want to thematically cover everything in Genesis 4 and 5. If you follow us on our socials, you were prompted this week to read ahead, Genesis 4 and 5. If you feel like a kid who didn't get his homework done, it's not a big deal. You don't have to like sneak away from class or anything. You can catch up this week. I'll try to give you thematically what's happening in these chapters. But really what Moses is doing as he writes chapters 4 and 5 of Genesis is he's coming off the heel of the fall in Genesis 3 that I preached about last week on Easter and the first sin. And, and really, after the first sin, God expels Adam and Eve out of the garden and they begin to have children as God commanded them to do and populate the earth. This is the story of, of particularly two uh, lineages, two family branches out from Adam and Eve. And uh, we'll talk about Cain and Seth and this guy Abel that exists uh, for a little bit of time. Now, uh, as we look at the family history of the first family on earth, um, you, you're probably familiar with family history mostly in the sense of like when you go to the doctor, they ask you, you know, for family medical history, a triage, you're filling out the clipboard of stuff, you're supposed to fill out family medical history, and I'm always a smart aleck on those things, and I'm like, well, how far back do you want me to go? Because I believe I can trace, trace my lineage somehow back to Adam and Eve, and so at some point, every disease and sickness is in my family in some way, um, but, but imagine, imagine Adam and Eve going to the doctor, right? And the doctor says, okay, um, can you give us a family history of, of medical issues? And they're like, well, there's no history before us of heart disease, and there's no history before us of cancer, and there's no history of these things. And so as they begin to have children, um, the genetic code just didn't have those things in it yet. Um, the decay of, of, of death and curse had not entered as prevalently into their DNA. And so one of the things that jumps out of this text is you see people living to crazy years of age. Um, many of them listed as living over 900 years old. And some of us may read that and try to explain that away and say, well, there's no way. Um, I do tend to take that literally. I, I believe when the Bible says that they lived to be 900 years old, I think they actually did live that long. And I attribute that to death's reign being so young. Again, God created the perfect biological man and woman, and they didn't have um, the, the genetic um, disease and things that had entered in yet. And so biologically, that's what we could expect, and we could expect them to fulfill God's command of, of filling the earth, of, of multiplying, of having children. So we don't know exactly how many kids Adam and Eve had. Moses isn't concerned with that. Rather, he only tells us three of their kids, um, Cain, Abel, and Seth. But they had a lot more, maybe even hundreds, um, but the uh, first century historian Josephus, um, through oral tradition, thought that they had 56. Josephus says that they had 33 sons and 23 daughters. However many kids they had, it is very likely that they had a lot. Um, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, they begin to have children. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. 
And it seems that Cain and Abel are the first two people that are, that are born. Um, we know that at least Cain was the first. There could have been maybe a brother or sister in between them. But, um, but Cain and Abel are the characters that are kind of set forth in this story. Now, Seth is one who comes later after Abel is killed by Cain. Spoiler alert, we're going to talk about that later. But Cain is a murderer. He kills his brother Abel. And Seth is another child that's born. We, we tend to think Seth is a third child, but that's almost positively not the case. Um, it's 130 years later. Chapter 5, verse 3 says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And so Seth was seen as a gracious replacement of offspring uh, of Abel. Uh, we see that in 425. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son, called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And again, we know they followed God's command to have children in those 130 years. And chapter 5 actually tells us they had other children. Um, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And so, um, so it's Im imperative that we know this. But again, Moses isn't concerned with listing all 50 or 100 kids that they had. Now, um, when they have all these kids, and as they begin to populate the earth, I know some of you are just twisted and depraved, and you're wondering, did, did brother and sister produce offspring? Well, we'll get that out of the way. Yes, if we believe all humanity came from two people, then yes, we believe that the first offspring had to marry and reproduce with their siblings. Um, incestuous relationships today produce birth defects due to common defects in family genetics. But again, back in this time in history, the genetic code was less contaminated, closer to God's perfect creation. This would have been less common. And so Moses just casually mentions that Cain has a wife. There's no Nicholas Sparks love story of Cain meeting his wife. We don't know where he found her. And in 417, it says Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son named Enoch. Now, where did Cain get his wife? Some people uh, postulate that maybe God created more humans than just Adam and Eve. Um, well, the Bible doesn't say that. And so rather than trying to insert things into the Bible that aren't actually in the Bible, um, sometimes we just need to embrace the weirdness of it, right? Um, if all humanity comes from a common ancestor, Adam and Eve, then that means that Cain married one of his sisters. And I, I get this is like Jerry Springer type stuff, right? Um, the Bible is weird and wonderful. Jeremy and I are doing a, a video every week addressing some of these weird questions that come up in Genesis. But again, Moses doesn't get caught in the weeds of that. He doesn't spend a, a lengthy amount of the chapter talking about incestuous relationships, okay? Um, that's not his emphasis. The second generation would have probably married first cousins, uh, third generation, second cousins, and so on and so forth. And then it resets after the catastrophe of the flood with eight people who survived the flood um, and, and all of that. Now, it's not until Moses' time that genetics become so corrupted by the curse and the fall that God outlaws the marriage of relatives. Okay, so you can have dinner with your sister, but no candles at dinner. Okay, um, that's, that's if, just by way of application. I know I'm not preaching in Alabama, uh, but West Virginia has a reputation. So if you're wondering, let's get that out of the way. Okay, um, and so God at a point in time says, this is, this is something that I'm going to disallow. Um, and again, Moses doesn't get bogged down with all of that. And so as you're reading Genesis and you come across all this weird stuff, I don't want you to get caught in the weeds of the weirdness of the Bible. I want you to see the message of the Bible. 
And the message that Moses is presenting in chapters 4 and 5, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is not where Cain got his wife and Jerry Springer-type topics. It's a story of two families, one head being Cain and another head being Seth. And so those are, the, those are the two stories I want to focus our time on as we look at uh, Cain to a guy named Lamech, who's a descendant of his, and Seth to Lamech. And so as we look at these family histories and these family trees, we're going to see a deviation and a different path of both of these families, Cain and Seth. Let's look at Cain's family first. From Cain to Lamech, we'll go. Um, and, and this very first man to be born of woman, we see the very raw effects of sin, Cain becomes the first murderer. I think it's a picture of humanity that we make it one person into humanity before humans kill one another. Um, we, we, we saw um, mass shootings again last night in our country. I, I, heard, I read a statistic this week. I think it was Monday. It's sad that it's hard to keep count of these, but I think it was Monday I read a statistic that year to date in America, we've had 132 mass shootings um, and, then, and then several more last night means that we've had more mass shootings this year in America than we've had days in this year. Uh, and what, what we see in that is that the hearts of men are deeply depraved and fallen away from God's plan for us. We're filled with strife and hatred and anger and murder. And, and, and this stems from sin, stems from the fall. And we see it in the pages of the Bible at the very beginning. The first thing man does in his sin is begin to kill his fellow man. Cain has anger issues, and he fails to control that anger. And what it stems from, hypocritically and ironically, is an act of worship. A worship service is described in chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. And Abel and Cain both come to worship God, one with proper motivation and one with a lack of proper motivation. Verse 3 says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. So Cain's a farmer. He brings a portion of his crop. This would have been a burnt offering. He burns it in, in an act of worship to God. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And this would have been, he was a, he was a, um, a cattle herdsman. And so he would have taken an animal and, and slain the animal. It says, Then the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And so we need to understand sin by understanding why Cain did what he did uh, and why God did not accept his offering. Um, one, some would maybe suppose that God did not accept Cain's offering because there was no death involved in Cain's offering. We know the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, but I don't think that's the case here. We see later in the book of Leviticus that many offerings that God actually prescribes are agricultural in nature. They were told to bring from their crop and burn it before the Lord. And so that was just a, a just and a, a beautiful, worshipful sacrifice. And so it's not just because it's not an animal. Some would say, well, because it wasn't the first fruits. It says of Abel's sacrifice that he brought the firstborn of his flock. And it doesn't say that, that uh, Cain brought of the first fruits, the first um, reapings of his crop. And that, that's plausible. That might be the case. There might have something to do with that. The, the Bible does tell us we're supposed to give to the Lord first before we indulge and enjoy for ourselves. But I think the third option is really most convincing, that 
God didn't accept Cain's offering because Cain's heart was not sincere. Cain's heart was not in the right place. You see, right worship depends on a right heart, not just right action. The Bible makes that abundantly clear throughout all its pages. One example in Hosea 6.6, God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That means for you, in an age where we don't bring crops and animals to church, at least I hope you don't. We don't want them, okay? Um, And so in an age where we don't do that, what is the application for you? It means that you can attend all the church services, do all the outreach, read all the pages of the Bible, sing all the songs, lift your hands in the air while you do it, and you can still have worship that's not accepted by God. You can still fall short of God's standard for you. And so you have to come and worship with a right heart before right action. And so checking off all the Sunday school boxes will not get you in a right relationship with your creator. Those things can be good. It was good that Cain offered a sacrifice, but it was very bad that he did it with the wrong motivation. And so if you're here so that you can get some kind of reward for God or receive some kind of prosperity from God, or you're here so that you can just get a a spiritual and heavenly party favor from God, then you're here from the wrong reasons and God does not accept your worship. You have to come with the right heart. Now, the good news is, is that even when we come with a wrong heart, God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and so forth and so on. God graciously comes down and speaks personally to Cain. It sounds similar to the way he talked to his dad, Adam, in the garden. He comes and he begins to ask him questions. Again, not because he doesn't know the answer to the questions, but because Cain needs to hear the questions for the purpose of conviction, to give the opportunity to repent. God gives sinners every opportunity to repent. Verse 6 says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God begins to warn him. God knows where he's going to go with his sin. And God warns him, do not let your sin rule over you. Sin is always at your door, tempting you, bringing desires to you that are contrary to God's will and plan for your life. You, Christian, must rule over sin. You must not let sin rule over you. The Hebrew word that God uses here is to be a master of your sin, to make your sin submit to your desires that are godly rather than letting it rule you and be a slave to it. You see, if sin rules you, it will ruin you, and your life will be ruined by the action that you enslave yourself to. God has given you dominion and power and authority, and he has placed too high a value on you for you to continue in the mess of sin that he saved you out of. You don't have to fall prey to sin anymore. Lay it down today. This is the message that God was proclaiming graciously to Cain, but Cain did not accept it. He did not rule over his sin. He let his sin rule over him, and his anger overtook him and made him its slave. Verse 8 says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and Abel killed him. Cain commits the first murder in an act of jealous hatred. Now, at this point, no human had died yet physically. But Cain was not excused by, by that. He knew exactly what death was. He had seen animal death. He knew what was going on. And Abel is, is sadly, his life is cut short. He's killed but we know Abel's a worshiper of God. God's, uh, or God graciously accepts the sacrifice from Abel. So Abel gets killed and he goes to heaven. First guy to go to heaven. He gets up there and he's like, 
this is nice. Like looking around, like no one else is there. He's got the whole place to himself, you know. He's like eating popcorn. Like, is anybody else coming to this or is this just for me? And he's just chilling up there for God knows how long, waiting on someone else to die. And, and here, like, like as Abel is gone, like God does with Adam, he comes again a second time for Cain and begins to question him. And he says, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He smarts off to his creator. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to you or crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. You see, Cain refuses an opportunity here of honesty, an opportunity of repentance. And instead, he smarts off to his creator and says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Well, clearly not. Quite the opposite, in fact. Didn't keep him at all. He ended him. And again, God punishes sin. Rightly and justly and full of wrath, God punishes sin through a curse. And we tend to look at this and say, well, Adam and Eve got a bad rap. All they did was eat, eat, you know, eat it from this tree. And here Cain murders someone, so he gets what's coming to him. But, but really, all acts of disobedience against God are high treason. God's so holy that any act of sin is deserving of a curse. And so Cain is cursed, and he leaves Eden. Verse 16 says, uh, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain goes on, and he has a family. He has a legacy that lives on. And he's actually feared by being the only murderer on the planet that he would, in turn, be murdered. Um, and he tells God, I'm going to be killed. Someone's going to hear about what I've done and kill me. And the Lord promises him in an act of grace that it won't be so. Verse 15 says, the Lord says to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And so somehow God marks him so that everyone would know that they're not, they're not to kill him. And he graciously preserves Cain and his family. His family is, you can read about it in verses 16 and onward, his family builds cities. They're credited with inventions in human history and innovation. But Cain's sinful ways stick with his family. We read about a guy in his lineage who is his great-great-great-grandson named Lamech. Now, Lamech, in verse 23, sings a song to his wives. He's the first polygamist. And, um, and so he's got a couple of wives, and he sings this song that's full of violence. He's like the first gangster rapper, too. And, and he puts, like, 50 cents to shame. He says in verse 23, it says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And so Lamech was a murderer just like his great-great-great-grandfather Cain. And I used to think when I read through this, because I tried to read the Bible every year and failed, and so I'd always read through Genesis, and I'd read through Genesis 4 and 5, and I used to read this and think that it was a song of sorrow, that, that Lamech was actually lamenting, that he was sad that he had killed someone. He felt immense guilt for it. And when he referenced sevenfold, but he had 77-fold, that he was saying that he was 77 times sorrowful and 77 more times deserving of God's vengeance. 
But that's not what he's saying. You see, Cain's revenge in verse 24 is talking about the curse on other people who would try to hurt Cain. And so Cain's revenge, vengeance coming from God to sevenfold, he's saying, if anybody messes with me, they're going to get 77-fold again. So more gangster than, than Snoop Dogg and 50 Cent and, dare I say, even Tupac. Um, he's saying, if anybody messes with me, they're going to catch these hands. And this means that repentance did not develop for Cain's family. Matter of fact, the opposite happened. Sin intensified in Cain's family. And the name Lamech means power. And Moses communicates that his power was found in violence and ruthlessness. And he was a deeply sinful man and he was proud of it. That's the legacy that Cain left. Now let's look at the legacy of Seth, his brother. Moses gives us a different branch of the first family's line, beginning in chapter 4, verse 25. He juxtaposes these two legacies. Again, he doesn't name every kid they had. He chooses these two to make a very specific point. And Seth's lineage is altogether different from Cain's lineage. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, there's a beautiful difference in what happens from Cain's family and his offspring and his children to Seth's children. That, that there's not a lot of detail given here, but somehow due to Seth's family and their legacy, people on all the earth, not just from their family, people on the earth began to call out to the Lord for hope. There's repentance, there's worship, there's hope. Even in the midst of sin that's beginning to, um, to multiply on the earth, people begin to call out to God and worship him. This should be the hope for our families. Those of you who are in Christ, your hope should be that you have children that draw people to the kingdom and that the family of God itself, our church, would be attractive to people, that they, would, that they live in the midst of sin and, and chaos and curse, that they would want to come into the family of God. That our hope should be that our children's children's children cause people who are far from God to come near to God. It's the hope of Psalm 127, which says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. You see, Seth evidently understood that his legacy was to populate the earth with God's glory, not his own. Not his own prideful boasting of how many men he could slay, but rather how many men and women he could produce that bring glory to God. You see, chapter 5 tells us of his legacy and his lineage. Now listen, I, I know chapter 5 is one that y'all just skip in your Bible reading plan. Okay, If you've got a Bible, just take a look at it. There's a lot of Hebrew there. There's a lot of spitting when you try to say all those names. And there's a lot of numbers in it. Okay? Um, and, and so we normally kind of skip over there, but it's important that we have this. One reason it's deeply important is all of these names, all of them that are in chapter five are repeated in Luke chapter three in the new Testament as Luke gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And so as we read of the family of Seth, we are reading of the family of Jesus, the one who would live the perfect life we never could and die a death that he didn't deserve so that he could save us from our sins and raise from the dead. The promised offspring in Genesis 3.15, when God says to the woman, I'm sending your offspring to free you from the curse, this is where the offspring comes from. 
this lineage, this family. It is through Seth's lineage that that promise would be fulfilled. And there's some cool stuff in here. One of them is you have the oldest recorded man in this chapter, Methuselah. Um, I remember hearing guys say that, like old men say that all the time. It's old as Methuselah, and they were like talking about a tractor or something. Um, Methuselah was extremely old. Uh, Verse 27 in chapter 5 says, All the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Methuselah probably felt the way I feel on Thursday mornings after I've played ball with the middle school boys on Wednesday nights. Like I just ache all over. I feel like I'm 900 years old. Um, But it's an interesting character we have here. And and Methuselah's dad is another interesting character mentioned. Um, Evidently, he did not die. Uh, We see him in Genesis 5.22. Enoch is his name. He walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's kind of cool, isn't it? It's like Enoch just went out for a walk one day, and then he wasn't, just like suddenly. And, and it's actually a little bit sad. I studied the Hebrew language there, and, and what that word means is he was found not. And so it's kind of sad because it means like everybody's looking for him, and he's up there hanging out with Abel, right? And so um, everyone's kind of looking for him. It says he was found not. Um, but, but what it does say is that he walked with God. We don't get a full explanation of this really until the New Testament in Hebrews 11, which gives us more information. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And how did he and the other members of Seth's family please God? Not by their righteous works, not by bringing the best things, not by sacrificing the most, but by faith. The the author of Hebrews continues, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and, and that he rewards those who seek him. And so for Seth's family and those who followed after that legacy, they knew that to please God, they had to have faith in God, not be impressive to God. And you need to hear that today. As we read about these ancient humans, you need to hear the same thing that they needed to hear, that you don't need to impress God. God needs to impress you. And when God impresses you, you will place all of your faith in him. That's what it takes to bring glory to God. And that's what Enoch did. And Enoch is just like, just like beamed up to heaven, I guess. Something cool happened there. Now, Enoch's great-grandson in this lineage, is a guy named Noah. You might have heard of this guy. I know a guy. And, and he's the one that built the ark in the day of the flood. Uh, by Noah's day, though, the entire earth is populated with disobedience. That the only people following after God's plan is Seth's family. That their influence began to shrink and sin began to increase. But Noah walked with God also. We'll get to chapter 6 next week, but just a foreshadowing. In chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And just like Enoch, Noah walked with God. Noah learned to walk with God from his dad and his granddad. Now his dad, interestingly enough, is a guy named Lamech. Another Lamech. Imagine that. Um, Lamech, you know, doesn't sound like a super common name to me. Um, it's not ranking real high on like the 2023 baby names, but if you're expecting, Lamech could be a good, um, it's a good thing to name your son because whether your son turns out to be righteous like Seth's 
Lamech or a gangster like Cain's Lamech. It's a fitting name either way. Um, but this Lamech is different, and he's Seth's great, 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 great grandson. And this Lamech, even though he bears the same name that means power, is not going to wield power by violence and brute force. He's going to wield power by faith and by trusting in God's good message. And I believe that Lamech saw the sinful trend of the world that he lived in. And he saw how the world was spiraling more and more into chaos due to the curse and due to the sinful depravity of man. And it says in verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. I don't know if you've experienced this or not, but I believe Lamech did, and I've experienced this. When you hold a a newborn baby and you're able to look into the eyes of life that's been given to you by God and you feel the overwhelming joy of having a child and the overwhelming fear of, I've got to keep this child alive, and then the added pressure of they're going to grow up in a world that is increasingly scary and terrifying. And all that mix of emotions is in there. And as Lamech looked down into baby Noah's eyes, verse 29 says, he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. You see, Lamech knew the truth of God. He knew that the only way out of the curse was someone sent by God. And Noah was that in a sense, but not in the fullness that Jesus Christ himself would be. Noah would bring comfort and relief, fulfilling Lamech's prophecy, but this prophecy would only prove true for seven other people. Seven people would listen to Noah and the warning of wrath that was coming on people. Seven people would receive the good news that Noah had, that they could be spared and saved. Seven, the number of completion, and wouldn't you know it, verse 31 says, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. So at the end of Seth's lineage, you have this man Lamech who hopes in a coming comfort and dies at 777 years old, God's number of completion and five years after, just five years after Lamech dies, God would pour out a flood, a literal flood of wrath on the world. And so as I conclude, why does Moses put these two families up against one another? What's he trying to show all of creation? What, what is in this for you? Well, the first thing is you need to see your own anthropology, and you need to see that by your sin and your sinful nature, You at least originally belong to the family of Cain, not the family of Seth. The family of Cain is used in the New Testament to describe people who are far from Christ in their sin. Jude 11 says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. He uses three different Old Testament references here, and one of them is the way of Cain, the first murderer. First John 3, John uses the same reference. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You see, there's a calling in the New Testament to leave our sinful nature, which is like unto Cain, and come into a godly nature, a new family, if you will. Jesus speaks about this, and I kind of believe that he's referencing the first brothers, Cain and Abel, when he talks about anger toward your brother. He preaches about it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
So Jesus is saying, you're not, just, you're not just guilty because of the murder, you're guilty because of your heart toward your brother. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, does something beautiful in that he condemns every human being who's ever lived. He says, you don't have to actually follow through with the act of murder. If you've ever hated someone in your heart, you're a murderer. You are just like Cain. You stand just as guilty as him. Well, what do we do about that? Well, that's not our necessary ending. We don't have to follow in the way of Cain. We don't have to write gangster songs and, and, and just relish in our pride and sinfulness. We can change families. The Bible calls it adoption. It's a beautiful thing. That the gospel brings us to an adoption by a heavenly father. And so quite, quite true is the changeover from one family to another when we are repentant. It's juxtaposed in Hebrews 11 as well. It says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The message of faith still speaks to you today, that you can follow in the way of Abel with acceptable worship, that you can follow in the way of Seth in leading other people to worship as well, that you can follow in the way of Enoch, warning other people to escape the coming judgment rightly and justly for their sins. Enoch is quoted in Jude 1, verse 14. It says it was also about these, these sinners that Enoch said, the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You can follow not in the way of those ungodly sinners, but you can change families through spiritual adoption. And you're insane if you don't take God up on this offer. We can follow in the way of not Lamech who relishes in his pride, but Lamech who hopes in a coming Savior, the one who hoped in a coming comfort, a coming Redeemer, a Savior to rescue us from a cruel and cursed world. And that's the message of the gospel. Not that you would be better, jump higher, be holier than every other person on the earth, but that you would hope in the one who could, Jesus Christ. That your trust would be in his perfect life, his death on the cross, his blood shed to pay for your sins, and his resurrection to give you eternal life. And if you miss out on that, you've literally missed the whole purpose of your existence. And you followed after the fruitless and foolish way of your father Cain. And it's my job to warn you of that. So if you would just bow your head, I want to call you to genuine repentance, whether it's your first time or whether you have been adopted into the family of God and you just see you need this week after week, day after day. I want to invite you to affirm your belongingness in God's family, to renounce the family you were born into of wickedness and sin and depravity and to embrace God's good plan for your life that he reveals to you in scripture. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.